If you just said this, right? I have to check out Harry Lang. I'm not the harder to your candidate. I'd, I, I'd, <laughs> you what, said I'm saying, what I'm saying is, I'd have to take out. Okay, I'll take out Conor Whelan then. Conor Whelan I, have to be. That's it. I quit. Subscribe to the GA podcast feed on the OTB Sports app now. Now you're very welcome back. We are talking tennis. We are talking French Open. Very happy to say that Caitlin Thompson of Racket Magazine is with us. So often, Caitlin, whenever we talk to you, it's an off-court saga. This time it's an on-court epic. We're actually talking to you about tennis for the first time. It's a miracle. I know. It feels almost quaint to be discussing a match and not some enswirling controversy. 6-2-4-6-6-2-7-6 Rafa Nadal he has avenged his semi-final defeat by Djokovic last year and he's taken me a touch by surprise because last time I really um, checked in Rome in the warm-up event it seemed all but certain that Nadal was uh, limping towards the end of his summer possibly his career his chronic foot injury looked to be very serious It absolutely did and I think whenever you hear chronic and foot something uh, you need certainly to locomote if you play tennis the way Rafa Nadal does, it doesn't portend very well for your chances to outlast probably the fittest person on at least the men's tour, uh, Novak Djokovic, uh, especially over five sets, especially in a Grand Slam tournament where you have to do this upwards of seven times to lift a trophy at the end of it. So I think many of us who have watched as the tide has slowly turned against Rafa in his head-to-heads against Novak Djokovic in the past couple of years. Obviously, um, the last tournament, uh, Novak got the better of Rafa at the French Open. And I think a lot of us thought, well, that's it. He's finally surpassed the, the legend on clay and there's no turning back. And I think definitely Novak came in as the favorite uh, for that match yesterday. But what a surprise it was. So I don't think anybody who follows tennis very closely maybe even bothers to predict what is going to happen in these things anymore. They just try to enjoy it as much as possible. Mm. This is an incredibly enduring matchup. So Nadal has won their 59th meeting and the gap is now 30-29 in Djokovic's favour. It's this extraordinary uh, relationship over, what, 15, 16 years. I thought, just to jump around for a moment, I thought the embrace at the end was distinctly cool not least given this may be the last time that we do this together. It was a curt handshake, I would say. At best. I think if you looked at the grimace, especially on Novak's face, uh, it didn't look like there was any love lost between the two of them. I don't think these two like each other very much. I definitely think it's different than when Rafa and Roger play each other. I think it's probably different than when Rafa or Roger play a member of the next gen. Uh, Novak famously is is quite a good sport. He's very gracious in defeat and victory. He always gives a lot of credit to his opponent. Um, but he was frosty at the very end of that. I think probably the crowd had something to do with it. The French crowd is always sort of notorious. They like getting involved in the match. And I think last night they were certainly um, sort of wild and on the, on the more uh, obnoxious end of the spectrum that they can get. So possibly that had something to do with it. But I think when it comes down to it, these two just plain don't like each other very much. And I think some of the commentary after the match on behalf of Novak uh, was definitely an indication that he was not his typical gracious self in defeat. And I think maybe he thought there was a little bit um, of, I don't know, you know, Novak often thinks the fate is stacked against him. And I think in this case, maybe it was more than fate. It was the crowd. It was fate. It was... Rafa's playing up of his injury to hear Novak tell it. So, you know, we can kind of get into the particulars if you like. But I think definitely that that embrace at the net was frostier than we've seen from the two of them before and certainly frostier than 
the two of them afford other opponents. And does the frostiness predate Nadal voicing his criticism, I suppose, or his disapproval of Djokovic and the vaccine in Australia and all that business? I think so. I mean, Novak has been sort of a contentious figure on the tour. I think a lot of his supporters tend to paint him as a victim of scheduling or favoritism because he doesn't attract the kind of crowds and love that Roger and Rafa do. But I also think, you know, Novak has not done himself any favors. He's got a pretty intense temper. Obviously, he got chucked out of the U.S. Open two years ago for hitting a balls woman in the throat. In the throat. He also chucked his racket into the stands um, in a way that had there been a crowd, he would have been instantly defaulted at the Olympics last summer. You know, he's somebody who has a very fiery temper. He uses it to motivate himself. We've seen it through, you know, match after match, scenario after scenario. But he's also up comparatively in the behavior category against Rafa, who's sort of a consummate gentleman. He plays the clock a little bit. Rafa famously has all these ticks and he can't be seated until his water bottles are all arranged in the right direction. You know, so so I think there's definitely some sportsmanship on Rafa's part when he plays anybody with regards to how he uses the clock and how he uses his time and how he can go into his routines. But I definitely think, um, you know, Novak's temper on the court is sort of famous. And I definitely think the vaccine brouhaha where Novak famously refused to get vaccinated and Rafa very sort of conscientiously said, listen, you know, I'm coming from Spain where we bore the brunt of the early part of the coronavirus um, pandemic brunt. And we're, we're, we're just going to have to follow the rules and, and listen to what the international health community says. So I don't think that helped matters, but I think this predated the Australian Open and other sort of COVID-related um, uh, dust-ups between the two of them. I dare say you've watched the previous 58 encounters between these two. It's a lot of hours. Every single one. Yeah. Every single one. Uh, no, did... I, I'm sure I've missed a couple. Okay. Sometimes these five setters, I take a break in the middle. <laughs> I try, I'd like to sort of bookend them. Otherwise, I just lose a day, you know? Did this fall along familiar lines in terms of tactics and how they went about trying to beat each other? Yeah, it's a good question. And no, not really. I think one of the reasons I do feel comfortable taking a break from some of these matches is both of these players are pattern players. They're, Novak in particular, very comfortable rallying pretty much ad infinitum until they get an opening to create uh, sort of a, a tactically offensive position. That's not the kind of tennis I like. I like tennis that's a little bit more first strike, that's a little bit more creative, that takes the initiative a little bit more. Um, and because these two are extremely patient and extremely fit and also extremely um, flexible in terms of what they're able to get to and continue a rally, with something we call shot tolerance within the tennis space, hmm. they're both very shot tolerant. So rallies can go on forever. And that is boring for me. So what I was sort of encouraged by, especially because there was a lot of sort of speculation about the shape of uh, Rafa's foot coming into this, is there was, especially in the first set and as the match went on at various stages where Rafa would really push to end points quickly. I think he knew that getting into an infinite rally with Novak from the baseline was probably not the best idea and creating the kind of angles that we know he loves to create, especially on clay, uh, was sort of a, a glimpse at, at Rafa of old, where he was really in full command of his powers. He played very aggressive, and he doesn't always do that against Novak. Um, and I think, obviously, the scoreline is reflective of the fact that when it counted in a few key points and junctures in the match, Rafa played head and shoulders more aggressive than Novak. Novak played a little bit defensive and safe, 
And I think that's not the way he's going to beat. Uh, that's the way he has beaten Rafa in the past. Um, and if you're not prepared to do that, I think it's to your detriment because I think Novak was assuming he would have a little bit more success in wearing Rafa down. And frankly, Rafa didn't give him the chance to do it because he was taking initiative in so many points. So yeah, there was a distinctive sort of tactical difference between this match and many, many others of the 59 that we've all watched minute by minute through the years. Yeah. So again, for people who didn't see this, and I was listening to the radio commentary in The Way Home From Work, and they were talking about Nadal in the first set having been sublime 6-2, and then uh, 4-6, Djokovic comes back into it and is playing very well. Nadal then returns and comes back 6-2. I joined it somewhere around then. And it was in the fourth where Djokovic is 5-2 up, and you think, well, wow, we're going to be here all night, quite literally. Uh, suddenly, as he may be fatigued and as Nadal started playing more aggressively and chasing down that set and just relentlessly saying, I'm not going to give you this set, I'm going to make you win it. It did suddenly occur to lots of people, I suppose, that for all of the injury or the worries over Nadal's injury, Djokovic, when you take the fact that he missed the Australian Open, Indian Wells, Miami, he hasn't played a match longer than three sets since September's US Open semi-final. Now, I know he trains religiously hard, but if you haven't played a competitive match longer than three sets since September, that is going to count against you. It must do. I think you're absolutely right. And I think I just want to note something that you said, which I absolutely love, which is that you were listening to tennis on the radio. Oh, man, that is a treat. It is a treat. It's such a treat. I remember before I had access to bundled streaming packages, actually listening to Radio Roland Garros, which is a service that's provided free by the Roland Garros. I mean, I'm sure there's lots of options, but that's something I used to listen to, especially when I was at work and streaming a tennis match in the back behind screen where my boss couldn't see was not an option for me. Now I am the boss, so I can do that, um, (laughs) but at my own detriment, obviously. So I just want to say, I think when you're listening to tennis, you absorb so much more about what is happening in the match in a certain way because you're missing it visually. So, so if anybody has yet to try that, check it out. It's, it's a really lovely sort of relaxing experience. Um, and I didn't, really intellectualize until you just said it, the fact that, yeah, he's not exactly matched up. He's not exactly in match shape. He's not the kind of um, player that we're used to seeing who's basically the longer a match goes on, you have to like his odds more and more. And I think even having said that, when I turned the match back on after having sat out the second and third sets, as did you, um, Rafa was down and he was down by, I think, two breaks and he was uh, about to face a couple of set points on Novak's serve. What happened next was really interesting because it was at that moment that, yes, as I noted earlier, Rafa started applying pressure in a way that was really notable. He, he went for more aggressive shots and really took it out of, uh, out of Novak's hands, took it off of his racket. But also Novak did look deflated. He did look like a person who hasn't spent so much time playing long matches. And the difference between practice and matches is sort of it's infinitesimally different. Mm. And I think for most of this year, he could have been playing on tour again, if he just followed the rules and get vaccinated. Um, and he didn't choose to do that. And he made an example out of himself and you know, that's, that's what happens. So yeah, I think part of that is match toughness. I also think part of it is Rafa has indicated this might be his last Roland Garros. I think he really is being held together with duct tape. So it wouldn't surprise me if, in a very, very Rafael Nadal-esque way, he's looking at this as perhaps his last great stand. And I think that we've already seen throughout his whole career, this man contends every single point as if it's his last. It's his superpower. It's in addition to all the skill and fitness and tactics he brings to the to the game of tennis. It's just 
at the end of the day, he, he does absolutely not want to lose or give up on a single ball. Mm. And I think that's something you can't teach. And I think, especially when you got, you got a guy who's looking down the barrel of probably the last great chance he has um, at his favorite tournament, the, the tournament is that has made his career. It's maybe foolish to think that he's not the favorite in every single point that he plays. That said, myself included, I think most of us thought there was not a chance. I thought, oh, well, he's down. If he loses this fourth set, it's over. And then all of a sudden, uh, the match was back in Rafa's control. And I was basically out of my seat screaming. My, yeah. my son was here with me, and he was sort of stupefied as to how any one person could get that into a tennis match. And I said, this is your inheritance. You know, deal with it. We're going to be doing this together for a, really, a long time yet. Um, but yeah, I think that the, some of the stuff you noted is exactly what we were watching, especially in that fourth set. There were so many ingredients that made this memorable and novel, and not least the start time. And even on mm. the uh, radio coverage, and it absolutely uh, followed through when I got home to the TV after I finished up in here, the crowd were kind of wired, as in we've got our blankets on, some people have gone home, we're all still here, it's really late. I mean, it's stupidly late. What are we all doing here? But doesn't this kind of make it a bit more um, memorable all the same? Um, on the start time, it was ridiculous. I mean, I'm sure it was nice for you to watch tennis over dinner and then and we're thrilled for you. So I was reading, that was at the behest of Amazon Prime. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And I think Amelie Moresmo, this year's tournament director, in an effort to modernise a lot of... Um, the way the tournament interacts with players, as we discussed the last time I was lucky enough to chat with you guys, you know, there have been some changes to the, to the tournament in terms of, you know, moving it beyond, I think from a broadcast perspective, from a revenue perspective, from a player relation, mental health perspective. And this was a very big change. You don't usually get a night session at Roland Garros. This match started, I guess, around 9 PM local time, Mm. which is fantastically late. If you think about the fact that it finished right around 1 AM Paris local time. So, Yes, on one hand, it's not great. Sorry, apologies. Yes, great for me. Apologies to you all who are watching it in a time zone that's, you know, should be uh, in bed at that hour. I also think, you know, at some point, the game of tennis and these tournaments have to sort of have a reckoning in terms of what makes for a safe environment for the players and the ability for them to not put their bodies at risk. You know, we talked about that a lot. The last episode, we chatted about tennis, about mental health. I also think there's a responsibility on the behalf of tournaments to to make sure these folks' bodies don't break down and, you know, become riddled with injuries such that they can't finish the season. Part of that is not scheduling matches so late so that they can't get to the training room until two. They're cooling down, they're eating, they're seeing their physio by the time some of these folks get home. Certainly when we have these sessions at the U.S. Open, some of the players aren't getting back to their hotel rooms until four or five in the morning. Um, And then sometimes they have to play the next day if they're in more than one event. And so, yes, on the behalf of the players it's pretty terrible and to say it's only because of broadcast rights is you know not ideal on the other hand if you looked at anybody in that crowd they were so excited to be there that Mm. crowd not a single soul got up and left before the final point was over and so i do think there's really something special obviously about the environment that we're all in this together we're watching something insane you know this is um this could only happen in this moment. I was actually talking about this this morning. My my business partner, David, and I had a hit after a meeting today, and we were talking about how late it was. And he said something really interesting. He was like, you know what? What's amazing about this is that it is fan service. Nobody turned that off. Nobody went away. And you can make all sorts of arguments about how we got there. Mm. But at the end of the day, this is what we want from sports. And the fact that it's not always a hit makes when it is a hit that much better, right? You can't predict what's going to happen in the matches. Sometimes they're rough and and Novak out of their 59 meetings, it's been a blowout. Sometimes one of them retires. Sometimes it's not 
Um, it's not as exciting as it could be. And then last night you get a cracker and everybody's glued to their seats until the very last point. So I think, you know, if I were the commissioner of tennis, it's not the first thing I would fix, mm. but it's definitely, um, you know, I can definitely understand how it feels maybe a bit like the commodification has come at the expense of the players. That yeah. said, nobody laughed. No, and it felt uh, appropriate that this is, if this is the last meeting, it would took centre stage. And it was kind of fun WhatsApping or uh, texting, I guess. Uh, we're more WhatsApping <laughs> over here. Uh, family members or friends going, are, are you are you up? It's it's after 12. Yeah, no, I'm up. I'm watching it. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, there was something kind of cool about that. Yeah. Did you say uh, you and your business partner had a hit after your meeting, as in like had a had a rally, like play tennis? Yes. Ah, uh, well, that, I mean, you're in the right business. That's a, that's a nice way to live. Absolutely. I mean, I like to think it's we get a we get the most done on changeovers when we have. <laughs> actually, as a matter of fact, we did today. We just designed our next two photo shoots for our product launches. So, okay, we I'll give it. I'll give the listeners here a sneak peek. One our, one of the next ones is going to involve grandparents. So, oh, okay. get excited. We got to try that here, having a hit. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, so the crowd were, were very involved and they were very partisan naturally. They, they certainly have adapted Rafa. Like he, he, he's our guy. There doesn't seem to be a fatigue with Rafa winning. He is more than welcome to win his 14th. And what exacerbated that, I suppose, is that Novak has, uh, whilst I think been a popular winner at Roland Garros when he did get over the line there, has certainly taken on the role of pantomime villain. So Bood coming out, booed when he gave the racket a smash. John McEnroe on the commentary feed I was watching said, give the guy a break, at least he cares. And then as he uh, walked off to acclaim and, you know, to a a grateful applause from everybody, he absolutely did not even uh, raise his hand or wave or do anything. So he was, uh, he thought thought about as much of them as, as he thought quite a few of them thought of him. It's really tough. I mean, I was thinking about this this morning because Novak has done plenty to earn the ire of those of us who watch tennis frequently and sort of resent the fact that we have to talk about things like a player council that doesn't include women and doesn't seem to do much when there's so much to be done or not choosing to take a vaccine and therefore creating a whole shambolic international incident when you could just be part of the tournament instead of a good example and stuff like that, you know, and I think as a, as a person who has played competitive tennis and as somebody who had a very, very strict line about when and how to express rage on the tennis court, the way he expresses rage, I find really frustrating to watch and, and not something that I like so much. I don't, I don't like when people throw their rackets. I certainly don't like if they come close to hitting ball people. There was an incident on the women's side earlier this tournament where a woman hit, um, Begu from Romania hit her racket on the ground. It bounced into the crowd and nearly hit a kid who was scared and cried and it was a whole thing. You know, my answer to all that is just default people immediately. Anybody, whoever it is, um, there's no place for that in the game of tennis. And I think for me, Novak has gotten away with a lot. And it wasn't surprised when he finally hit somebody in the face with a ball by being careless a couple of years ago and then got defaulted. There was a lot of near misses that came before that. So I think, you know, Novak is the sports villain is earned. I also think there is something to the fact that we have such ingrained fanships and the French crowd is the most partisan famously of all of them. You know, I've heard it said, and I think this is true, having been to the tournament once or twice, that there's no crowd as informed about tennis as the ones who are as the ones who are in Paris. They really know their tennis. They go to the outer courts. They get invested in the matches in a way that suggests they have a real connoisseur's sort of eye for the stories that don't exactly captivate, you know, a, a, any lay person to the sport. I think that's really cool. I also think it means they're sort of in love with their narratives, maybe a little bit more than other tournaments or other slams. Um, so I don't necessarily blame Novak for feeling a little bit short shrifted by the, the crowd. You know, I mean, Alizé Cornet, they're a French woman had a 
sort of chopsy-turvy three-set loss a couple of days ago and was booed by her compatriots for not making more of a stand in the third set. So, you know, part of it is just the fact that they're pretty fickle, they're very vocal, and they're going to make themselves part of the match whether you like it or not. I also think Novak has done so much and seemed to delight and take energy from a little bit of crowd antagonism, you know, in a match. And this has happened less recently, but people who've watched him for years will remember that a lot of times in matches when it gets close or maybe he's lost a set, there's usually a visit to the trainer. There's some sort of jawing with the umpire, or maybe there's somebody in the, in his box that he gets into it with. And he seems to be able to activate some extra level when he gets angry in a way that, again, I don't love to watch. I like to, to watch the sort of happy creator types like a Francesca Schiavone. That's my ideal form of tennis player. But he seems to feed off a lot of that negativity where he can fire himself up and therefore get to a different sort of more sublime state. I also think that that's sort of playing with fire as a way to, to count on to, to get yourself fueled. And I think in certain cases, maybe in the case of this, you know, French crowd, it didn't exactly show up for him and it made everyone just more entrenched to root for Rafa. We'll see what happens in France on the men's side when Rafa finally retires, because then I think the divisions and the sort of favorites and the narratives are going to be completely redrawn. You know, the only folks who've won the French open in the last couple of years who haven't had the last name, um, of Nadal have been Roger and Novak. Right. And Mm. so at a certain point that's going to change and we'll get some more sort of interesting characters in the mix. And then we'll see who the French decide that they love Mm. or love to hate. Mm. Well, Nadal's back out on Friday. So he's 110 wins from 113 matches at Roland Garros. And, We'll see how he's patched up and put out on court on Friday. Just uh, one point to get your thoughts on. You mentioned the tournament director, Amelie Moresmo, in her first year as tournament director, former Wimbledon champion, Australian Open uh, champion. She was talking about scheduling uh, generally and was saying she's learning lots of different things. And she was asked about the fact that of these 10 nighttime matches, only one of them has been a women's match. And it's seen as the main event, I suppose, of a given day's schedule. And, well, she... uh, she said what she was thinking, really. I mean, imagine Novak Djokovic saying this as head of the Players' Council, what we'd all be saying. So she said, in the era that we're in right now, and as a woman and a former women's player, I don't feel bad or unfair to say you have more attraction and appeal in general terms for the men's matches. So is uh, <laughs> is this like a post... Um, are we are we post-sexism here? Where is it like a little swing and <laughs> roundabouts and, and there'll be a time when it's nine women's when there's more appeal given the players on show there? Or is this just uh, an odd thing for the tournament director to come out and say so boldly? I read the transcript of her remarks and Catherine Whitaker, the British journalist who asked her about that, I think should get some credit because I think it was on a lot of people's minds just the disparity between scheduling. At the US Open, for example, there's always a night session, like it or not. It usually starts pretty late. And there's one match for each gender matchup. And so guaranteed you get two matches in an evening. Sometimes the women go first, sometimes it's the men, but either way, there's sort of representation in that night session. That has not been the case at Roland Garros. I think, frankly, probably to the advantage of the women, most of these night sessions have been late and cold in a way that not very many people seem to enjoy playing. But regardless, it does sort of raise the question, which is, you know, in an era where, as you noted, Amazon Prime and... um, commercial interests have a very, very vocal seat at the table. How do we address the fact that in some cases, the men's matches are better drawing, especially in an era where Barty's out, Serena hasn't picked up a racket in a very long time. And, you know, there's not a ton of folks who could 
make maybe the match of the day in the second week. You know, you probably wouldn't put Daria Kasatkina and Veronica Kudermantova at the at the a, as good a matchup as that is as your mat- night match if you have a Rafa and and uh, Novak match. I mean, that's sort of a bad analogy because one of those matches was today, one was yesterday, but you get my drift, right? Yeah. So she really is trying to accommodate, I think, a lot of different interests. That said, I do feel like some of the choices that Roland Garros has made in terms of the match of the day has been wrong. Like Anissa Muva Osaka, that was a first or second round banger. That should be, uh, that should be at, at the evening session, regardless of what coaches want, regardless of what agents want. You know, we have to also consider that a lot of times some of these folks behind the scenes are putting their thumbs on the scale and saying, hey, my player is from this part of the world. This is a great broadcast window for them and for us and for our endorsers. Can you please see what you can do? Mm. In the case of Roger and Rafa, or sorry, Rafa and Novak, for example, I know that Rafa's team requested he play during the day because he likes playing when it's hot and warm and not when it's cool and slow. Um, And this was seen as, uh, you know, by the Novak fans as, and you know who are usually complaining about scheduling favoritism at Novak's sort of um, to Novak's detriment as being a rare case where Novak's scheduling preferences won out over somebody else's. So I think there's a lot going on with with this that we haven't. You know, it's not just about gender parity. That said, you know, I think one of the things I talk about a lot and one of the things I believe, which is the games are amazingly compelling and it doesn't really matter if you're on court 17 or center court if the match is good if the level of tennis is high which at the pro level it almost always is and if you're you know my friend craig shapiro says if you're court sided a tennis match especially a professional one it feels like the center of the world mm. and so i do think part of the responsibility of these tournament directors is sort of yes of course to guarantee the security of their their asset which is their tournament and the the product that they're making to make sure it's financially sustainable, but also to to take a minute to promote a lot of the matches. Because on the women's side, a lot of the matches have been better matchups than than the men's, especially during the first week. Right. Um, and so part of it is just who's making decisions, who's in the control rooms, what are the commercial interests, what are the agents asking for, and all this stuff. Whereas if you have something really simple like the US Open system where it says, okay, men's and women's tennis is just as entertaining, it's different formats, we're going to create a demand um, for both. And then that'll be self-sustaining. You know, there are many, many years when the women's side of the draw, um, outperformed the men's in terms of broadcast, uh, audience and ticket sales. Right. So, you know, for me, it's more just, if you, if you make a space for it, it'll be self-sustaining. And if you don't, then it won't. And I think for women's sports, it's, it's tricky. So I'm, I'm very, sympathetic to Amelie trying to juggle all these things, especially in her first year. And I don't really mind because I suspect there was a little bit lost in translation um, for her to sort of be as maybe post-feminist as, as you noted. But I also suspect this is something that the French open would be smart to, um, to, to think about Mm. and to, to, you know, as far as I know, every single product, especially at the French open because Gabriella Sabatini is playing the legends this year. Every single court is a sellable product and it's just about making sure that product finds its correct audience. Like today, I didn't watch the women's semifinal for, with Iga. I watched Gabriella Sabatini and Gisela Duco play women's legends doubles because I want to see what it looks like to watch Gabriella Sabatini age 52. Um, and a spoiler alert, it looks really good, you know? Right. So for me, it's that's as viable a product as, as something that's going on Philippe Chaucher. It's just about how we make that, you know, make that equation work. 
One last very quick question, and this is a little bit inside baseball, inside tennis. I'm looking for a, a steer here. So John McEnroe was on the commentary feed I was watching, and I was thinking mm. to myself, I bloody love John McEnroe. He's just so natural. He uh, speaks uh, so uh, clearly, concisely, tells you what he's thinking. Give, I feel like I'm getting an insight into the actual match as well. And I just think, I just think this guy is so good. So do the aficionados also like John McEnroe and think, yeah, he's bloody good, or are you a bit sick of his shtick? I think his shtick is everything you say. It's approachable, it's fun, it's energetic. His brother is a disaster. Patrick McEnroe has been riding on that guy's coattails forever, and we get stuck with both. Maybe not in Europe, because I know McEnroe does a lot of Eurosport, and they haven't been able to include Patrick in the deal. Trust me, you're not missing anything. Right. Um, I think those of us who follow tennis very closely like the fact that John has this great appeal to the uninitiated in a way that we all recognize is very, very good for the game. So yeah. it doesn't feel so inside baseball. So it doesn't feel exclusionary. I think, you know, John, despite being from an extremely privileged upbringing, has a little bit of every man to him in a way that I think is very additive. On the other hand, he does not do any research about any of the players' pronunciation of their names. He kind of makes up stats on the fly. He doesn't he's not particularly prepared. And I think for, for those of us, it seems like a small price to pay for the extremely large salary he's getting, not only from Eurosport, but also ESPN and others, right? Like just do a little bit of prep or hire an assistant who can give you pronouncers on how to, to, you know, strike the ball's name. For me, there's a guy here, Brad Gilbert, who goes to the challengers and can tell you the scouting report of some guy at Ecuador who you've never heard of and give you his entire match replay. I'm not looking for that, but I think if John McEnroe maybe had like a few more percentage points where he seemed like he cared or didn't just want to talk about, you know, Bjorn Borg, then it would feel a little bit more like he was earning his salary. So I can sort of see that one both ways, but I would love, frankly, just kind of generally to get a little bit more fresh blood in the commentating mix. Because I think, you know, when you haven't had a player who's played within a decade or three of the current generation, you're probably missing out on some more relevant, newer information that would be great. So I'm not saying we have to fire him, but get him a pronouncer, maybe pair him with somebody who's played in the tour more recently to kind of keep it alive. That would that would be my recommendation. Again, okay. I'm waiting to be commissioner of tennis. So yes, you guys let me know when I can start and I have a long list. We'll be in touch. Caitlin Thompson, Racket Magazine. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. Thanks, guys.